Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about things that have made the Scriptures become more real to us because we need all the power we can get from the Scriptures, and when they're real, we can draw more power from them. I'm your host, Kerry Mulstein, and I'm so happy to have with me uh, a, a longtime friend and mentor of mine, Terry Ball, who uh, was, I think, the department chair when I first started to get hired here at BYU, but by the time we finished that process, he was the dean. Uh, we, we carpooled for years uh, and served on councils together, and uh, I've learned so much from Terry over uh, so long. Uh, most especially, maybe the, the, the thing I've learned the most is that uh, if you know a good joke, it makes all meetings better. Uh, when he was Dean, he used to tell us good jokes in, in those meetings. But uh, anyway, just glad to have you with us. Terry's also an expert. He taught Isaiah course for forever, and he's written a great book on Isaiah that I love. Uh, and so welcome, Terry. Thank you. Appreciate this opportunity. Yeah. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself? You're retired now. You're serving a, a, a stay-at-home mission. Um, but uh, what, what else should we know about you? I know you've got all sorts of fun stuff we can learn. Well, I retired two years ago from, from BYU. I spent about 40 years as a religious educator. It was a great privilege, and I uh, enjoyed it so much. And, and, uh, and now my wife and I are serving a live-at-home member leadership support mission in Utah or a mission, and that's been a, a great privilege for us as well. Um, as a teacher, I love teaching Isaiah. Uh, I love this prophet. I love what he wrote, and I love the way he wrote it, and I love the way it speaks to me and the way it's blessed my life. So I'm really grateful to have this opportunity to share from these final chapters of Isaiah some of the things that have blessed my life, and hopefully what I share will be will be uh, helpful to those who are listening. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you. Well, why don't we just jump in? Uh, you tell us what uh, speaks to you in these chapters or just in Isaiah in general. Well, uh, this the, the block that you asked me to think about was uh, the last chapter, starting with chapter 58 and moving through chapter 66. And of course, Latter-day Saints love chapter 58. This is the this is the chapter you looked at. You look at whatever you have to uh, give a talk in church about two topics, fasting and Sabbath day observance. Yeah. And I don't think there's a better discussion of either of them anywhere else in the scriptures. Yeah, he begins talking about fasting. You know, when I taught Isaiah, one of the things I taught my students to look for that I think helped them to understand the prophet is that often when Isaiah was talking to his covenant people, he would kind of do what a doctor would do. He would um, he would be kind of like a spiritual physician for them. Sometimes when he spoke to them, he would be giving them a diagnosis, telling them, here's what's wrong with you. Yeah. Sometimes when he spoke to them, he'd be giving a prescription, telling them, here's what you need to do better. And then sometimes when he spoke to them, like a doctor, he'd be giving them a prognosis. Here's what you can expect in the future if you follow the prescription or not. And in chapter 58, as he speaks about the fasting, you see all three of those. Um, in the first, well, verses three through five, he kind of gives the diagnosis of a problem they're having with fasting. Uh, this this chapter, the way this opens always amuses me because in the third verse, it seems that that the people are kind of telling Jehovah that um, he's not paying much attention to them and that he has a problem. As it reads, as they complain to Jehovah, they say, wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou, that means Jehovah, thou seest not. Wherefore have we afflicted our soul and now make us no, take us no knowledge. 
It's like, you know, we've been fasting and Jehovah, you owe us big time because we're fasting. Yeah, yeah, we haven't been getting what we asked for. We we paid by fasting. Where's our product, right? You know, if you ask a question like that, you better be prepared for the answer. And in the answer, the Lord gives a diagnosis of what's wrong with the way they're fasting. It's interesting. Let me read this. You tell me, Carrie, what uh, what you make of the, what he says is the problem with their fasting. He says, behold, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exact all your labors. Behold, you fast for strife and debate and to smite with the fist of wickedness. You shall not fast as you fast to do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. Is this such a fast that I've chosen the day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and just spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? Of course, that's rhetorical, and the answer is no. Yeah. But as you look at that, what's what's wrong with the way they're fasting? Well, it seems like there are a lot of things that are wrong with it. Uh, uh, part of it is that uh, their they're fasting is in they're going without food, but there's no heart behind it, right? They're still doing their normal things. They're having fun. They're doing their they're, they're going about life as normal rather than focusing on the fast and the uh, drawing closer to the Lord. And, and uh, there's a certain uh, sorrow that maybe should be associated with this. But they're having their pleasure and so on. And then they also there's somehow it's it's tied up with strife and debate. I don't know. When I read that, I think of how I get hangry when I'm fasting. And uh, <laughs> maybe that's what they're talking about. But they're uh, they're they're also doing it. Uh, that part, I think, where to make your voice be heard on high They're they're. Um, so he says, you shall not fast. You do this day to make your voice be heard on high. You can take that one of two ways. You can take that as he's saying, um don't if you want your voice to be really heard by me don't fast the way you've been fasting mm -hmm. or you can take that to mean you're fasting to make sure that people know that you're to make sure that people hear that you're praying and fasting right and you can take that either way but i kind of suspect it's that former way uh that if you really want me to hear you then you got to quit doing these other things that, where you're you're fasting but at the same time instead of taking care of the poor you're oppressing the poor i think that's part of the smite the fist with wickedness and strife and debate and so on so anyway uh i think if i were going to give it like the the base root diagnosis it's their heart's not in it they're going through the motions but their heart's not in the right place yeah it's certainly their heart isn't directed towards others it seems to be mostly directed towards themselves like look at me yeah i am so pious i'm fasting Aren't you glad that when you walk into church on fast Sunday, you don't see people in the foyer sitting on sackcloth pouring ashes over their heads saying, <laughs> oh, I'm such a righteous person because I'm fasting this day. I am that glad for that because be I'd have to, to clean up the ashes. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'd have to vacuum that. Yeah. And you're right about that part. It says, behold, you fast for strife and debate. You know, the footnote says fasting without spiritual motivation only engenders discomfort and irritability. Yeah. You know anyone who gets cranky when they're when they're fasting? Yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's me. I get cranky about an hour after I eat if I don't get more food anyway. So <laughs> well, I love what he does next as he gives a prescription in verses six and seven. He explains what constitutes a proper fast. What do you make of this? Is not this the fast that I've chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens. Let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry 
that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house, and when thou seest the naked, that thou cover him. Thou hide not thy flesh from thine own self. As you look at that prescription there, Carrie, what do you see are the elements of an appropriate fast? So, all right, now, see, this is supposed to be me asking uh, you to tell us all sorts of stuff, but that's all right. I'll, I'll go ahead. But uh, I like to pick your brain. If you pick my brain, it's slim pickings. No, no, no. But I, 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 you, you can always tell when you're in the presence of a good teacher because they just keep asking you the questions. Um, I think there are a couple of things here. Uh, as you said, uh, uh, the, the primary thing of the fast is not to turn inward, but to turn outward. And so most of this is actually focusing on taking care of other people and helping other people. And I think he's actually drawing a little bit on some of the imagery he used in Isaiah 62, which is drawing mm -hmm. on the imagery of the, the Jubilee year and, and letting people go who have become oppressed or have become captive. And, and he uses similar language. So I think he's drawing on that a little bit. But uh, I think part of what he's doing is saying you fast to, first of all, set yourself free, I think, is part of this. Uh, so part of the principle, I think, is that, I mean, we, we do have to eat. Let's be clear. We actually are in bondage to the need for food. If we don't get food, then we're all in trouble. But we set ourselves free from that bondage just for a little while. Not fully because we still feel the effects, but we set ourselves free from that bondage. And hopefully that reminds us of how Christ sets us free from bondage to the natural man and all of these things that, that we are in bondage to. And so we can be free from the bands of wickedness and these heavy burdens, but we also want to let everyone else go free from whatever they're oppressed from. And sometimes that is just, you need food to eat. And that's why taking care of the, the hungry or, or giving them clothes and so on is part of fasting. You're helping them also get uh, free from the oppression of just the natural world and, and the necessities of the natural world. Um, but I, I think that there's some spiritual symbolism there as well, that we need to feed them spiritually and we need to clothe them spiritually. And, and so on. So there are a thousand forms of oppression. And when we fast, we should be aiming at, at freeing ourselves and others from all of them. Uh, and part of that has physical necessities, but part of that is by bringing us all to Christ, who's the one who really sets us free from oppression. That's so well said. That's so well said. So as I look at that, I see him saying, of course, a proper fast includes abstaining from food for a period of time. Yeah. It includes dealing your bread to the hungry. We do that through paying a generous fast offering, right? Mm -hmm. Appropriate fast requires us to, to pay the generous fast offering. Sometimes I would have students say, well, Brother Ball, what if I'm fasting in the middle of the week for, uh, for a roommate who has a problem? Should I pay a fast offering on that fast? My answer always was, well, no, unless you want the blessings. And then the answer is yes. <laughs> but then this idea, too, that it's a way that we loose bands of wickedness, uh, especially, I think, in ourselves. You mentioned that. You know, we say that fasting makes us more spiritual. President McKay taught that spirituality is a consciousness of victory over self. Mm. The greatest battles in life aren't fought on the battlefield, but in the silent chambers of the soul. Right. The battle he's referring to, I think, can can be understood to be that battle between who's going to dictate our thoughts, actions, and desires. Is it the natural carnal man or is it the spiritual higher man inside of us? Right. I know that every time we make the desires of the flesh be subject to the will of the spirit, it's like lifting spiritual weights. And we strengthen the spiritual man and give ourselves more control over the natural man. So it makes sense then that fasting 
would make us more spiritual because the spiritual man is saying to the natural man, I'm not going to feed you or whatever it is you're fasting from if you can't fast from food. Right. So it gives you this victory so that you get to the point where you're more able to have the spiritual man, the higher, nobler part of yourself dictate your thoughts, actions, and desires rather than the carnal, natural, sensual man. Yeah. I know that if there are things about ourselves that we don't like, things we'd really like to change, that fasting and prayer can help us make those changes. I know that if we sincerely go to our Father in Heaven and say, Heavenly Father, I don't want to be this way. I, I want to be better. Will you help me? If we supplement that prayer with fasting, I think we gain access to a spiritual strength that really helps us overcome that natural side. And I, I, I suspect that that's part of what he's re referring to in verse 6, that it helps us loose the bands of wickedness. And we ought to be fasting with that, that, that purpose. Yeah, and undo the heavy burdens. I I agree. And you know, as you say, um, it helps us. We we say it helps us become more spiritual. I, I I so much agree. Another way of saying what you've said is, in some ways, it helps us become more spiritual because it helps us become less carnal. And yeah. and ourselves, we really are kind of a zero sum self. Really, the the more the, we ignore the natural man in us and feed the divine side of us, right there. I mean. It, 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 as the divine side gets stronger, the natural man gets weaker naturally and, and vice versa. Uh, and so you just got to starve that that natural man to some degree, uh, maybe a little bit literally. But uh, and that automatically ends uh, up feeding the, the spiritual or divine nature within us. Yeah. So a proper fast is not only abstaining from food, but it's giving generously in our fast offerings. And then fasting with this purpose to improve ourselves and to access the powers of heaven for others. That's what he's saying. Yeah. He gives the prognosis here in verses 8 through 12. I love what he says about what fasting can do for us. I think sometimes we underestimate what fasting can do for us. But look at this imagery. Starting in verse 8. If you fast the way he described in verse 6 and 7, here's what happens. Then shall thy light break forth as the morning. I love that light here. I don't, I think means something more than electromagnetic radiation. I think he's talking about DNC 93 light, true knowledge and intelligence. And think about how the light comes forth in the morning, how it, it comes up and it gets brighter and brighter and brighter throughout the day. It's like if you fast appropriately, you gain access to more truth and knowledge. Then shall I help spring forth speedily? And there's certainly health benefits to appropriate fasting. I like the next part. Thy righteousness shall go before thee, and the glory of the Lord shall be thy reward. Or thy rear guard is another way to say that. Yeah. So the idea is that your righteousness will protect you from the front, and God's got your back. Yeah. He'll protect you from behind. Verse 9, then shalt thou call, and the Lord will answer. Which is in contrast to what they were saying in verse three, right? Where they oh, said, yeah. we fasted and nothing happened. Now he's telling them, well, if you want something to happen, here's how to how to make it happen. So anyway, sorry, keep going. Oh, yeah. Then shalt thou cry, and he'll say, here I am. If thou take away from thee the midst, the midst of thee the yoke and the putting forth of the finger and speaking vanity, you know, talking again about the inappropriate fast. He goes on and says, if you draw out your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted, then shalt thou light thy light rise in obscurity, 
and darkness will be as the noonday, even your darkest times. And the Lord shall guide thee continually, satisfy thy soul and drought and make fat thy bones. Thou shalt be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters fail not. That fount of living water we get access to. They that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. You know, raise up the foundations of many generations. Interesting, appropriate fasting can bless future generations as well. And you'll be noted for the good you do. You're the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the past to dwell in. Boy, so many wonderful promises. Yeah. Fasting appropriately. Yeah. I don't know anywhere in the scriptures where fasting is better, better described. So I'm kind of glad that then those folks were whining about <laughs> they weren't really fasting. They were just being hungry. Yeah. And there's a difference between fasting and fast two verses, of course, address the Sabbath day. And I love the principle that's taught in verse uh, in verse 13 of this chapter. You've probably been in a position where you've had students who want you, when you're teaching a lesson on the Sabbath day, to put a list on the board of all the things you should and shouldn't do on the Sabbath day. You know, <laughs> how many hours of, hours of the Super Bowl can I watch before I have to surrender my temple recommended? <laughs> you know, it's almost like they want to return to the Mosaic law. Yeah. You know that anciently, Gary, the Sabbath day was, was the commandment that marked the worshiper of Jehovah. It was the hallmark of a, of a follower of Jehovah. We've kind of gotten away from that a bit, haven't we? Yeah, I, I'm actually a little bit alarmed at uh, how far away from that I find us moving. I'm I'm surprised at uh, where we've gone with this, uh, at least many of the people I know. It's like today, the hallmark of a Latter-day Saint is the word of wisdom. You know, they'd make a great Mormon. They don't smoke or drink or nothing. And, and in the yeah. words, it's a great commandment. But wouldn't it be wonderful if they said they'd make a great Latter-day Saint because they keep the Sabbath day holy? Yeah. But, you know, in verse 13, I think there's a there's a, a principle that's taught here about how to determine if an activity is okay for the Sabbath day. And it's not based on mosaic law kind of thing. It's the principle. Let me read it. It says, if thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath of light, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasures, nor speaking thine own words. Do you see the principle there? Yeah. So yep. if you have and a that, that next line of verse 14, also delighting in the Lord, right? So it's not delighting in yourself, but in the Lord. Anyway, sorry, keep going. Yeah. So if you're wondering if an, if an activity is okay for the Sabbath day, you ask yourself, why am I doing it? Is this right. to, to serve God and others, or is it all about me? Right. Um, you know, if you use that principle to direct your Sabbath day activities, I think it opens up all kinds of avenues of great things to do. We have so much discretionary time on the Sabbath nowadays. Of course, going to church and and fulfilling our church callings and worshiping, renewing our covenants, attending our meetings. That's always an important part of the Sabbath day observance. But then you have this huge block of time. What if you ponder the question, what can I do now to further serve God or to bless and help others? And when you think about that, you get all kinds of ideas. So instead of yeah. watching the Super Bowl, you might go to the hospital and read books to children in the in the cancer ward, or, or you know, there's just so many other things you could be doing that would be appropriate for the Sabbath day. 
And then, as you said, the promises in verse 14, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord. I'll cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob, thy father. As an Old Testament scholar, what does it mean to you, Carrie, to think about riding on the high places of the earth and being fed with the heritage of Jacob? I think it means you're going to fully receive the the Abrahamic covenant, everything that's part of the Abrahamic covenant in full, uh, which includes exaltation. But it, but it's also Isaiah is one of the ones that uses these images of he's borne us on eagle's wings, right? That uh, yeah. he'll he'll take us where we need to go in an easier way than we would get there on our own. Yeah, and where we actually we can't get on our own. And How about you? Uh, well, the heritage of Jacob, I think, is it, the inheritance. It's ours as those who follow the covenant. Yeah. And you receive all the Father has as your inheritance. Yep. It's a promise that Sabbath day observant will lead you to exaltation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love chapter 58. You know, as I look at this block, another major theme that's exciting for Latter-day Saints is what it says about Latter-day Gentiles. Hmm. And um, these verses, these this teaching is is just critical and, and means so much to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. You know, as 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 Nephi and Mormon and Moroni close out their writings, you find often this passionate plea to Latter Day Gentiles, among whom the gospel is restored, to please gather scattered Israel and prepare the world for the coming of Christ. And, and, they're a little worried about us, and they, they plead with us to do that. I think they get that idea and that practice from Isaiah. Because mm -hmm. here in these closing chapters, he speaks also so much about the critical role of the Latter-day Gentiles, who were stewards of the covenant, who had the responsibility to gather scattered Israel in preparation for the coming of Christ and the millennial theocracy that he will bring in. Um, that idea is first introduced in chapter 11 of Isaiah. Closing verses of chapter 49 of Isaiah enhance it again. One of the places it's taught so powerfully again is in chapter 60 of Isaiah. Um, it begins with this admonition to arise and shine and let your light come upon for the glory of the Lord has risen upon thee. And it says, behold, darkness will cover the earth, gross darkness the people. I've written in my margin there, this is a time of great apostasy. But then what happens? The Lord shall arise upon thee and his glory shall be seen upon thee and Gentiles shall come to thy light and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about and see all they will gather themselves together. They will come to thee. Now they're called Gentiles in verse three and four, the first part of verse four. But at the end of verse 4, what are they recognized as when they come to the light? Yeah. They're not That's Gentiles. Not... They are sons well, yeah. and daughters. daughters. You know, the Book of Mormon teaches that when the Gentiles accept the gospel, when they come to the light, they're numbered among the house of Israel. Right. The Doctrine and Covenants mentions members of the churches of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as those who are identified with the Gentiles. Whenever you read prophecies about Gentiles, you have to you have to interpret the, who are the Gentiles in light of how Gentiles are defined in the day of the prophecy's fulfillment. Uh, in our day, we 
function from the Jew-Gentile paradigm. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. The problem with that is lots of people who have the blood of Israel in them are called Gentiles because they're not Jews. But yeah. we know that as you accept the gospel covenants and receive your patriarchal blessing, you find what uh, what part of Israel to which you belong and where your blessings and responsibilities come. And, uh, and I think uh, some of this ends up being confusing because sometimes it's talking about nations, like you said, Jew, Gentile. Those are nations. Those are large groups. But mm -hmm. within those Gentile nations, there are lots of Israelite individuals. Right. So yeah. if we're to go back, you know, at the, verse one and two, when it's saying thy light has come and and uh, and so on, the, the thy are Israelites. <clears throat> Excuse me. The, mm -hmm. They're Israelites. Right. Uh, so Christ, Israelites. Right? Yeah. Are, well, they're going to, to shine Christ's light to the world. But um, the, the Gentiles are going to come to their light. And yet it's going to be Israelites in Gentile nations that shine the light and bring in other Israelites in those Gentile nations, but also Gentiles in those Gentile nations. And then, as you say, we all become Israelites. Uh, that's uh, th th that So sometimes when it's talking about Gentiles, it's actually still talking about Israelite individuals within those Gentiles. As you were saying, we we find uh, in our patriarchal blessing that we're Israelites. And, and as you say, Gentiles themselves become Israelites. Yeah. And so you have these Gentiles who come to the light of Jehovah and his covenants, and now their sons and daughters, as it says at the end of verse 4. Verse 5, then shalt thou see, and they'll flow together, Gentiles and Israel flowing together. Thine heart shall fear and be enlarged, because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. That's to some people, sounds like a really funny statement to say, but we learn that the islands of the sea is Isaiah's way of referring to the scattered covenant people. Mm -hmm. Our understanding of that is especially enhanced from when uh, in 1 Nephi 21, when Nephi quotes Isaiah 49, the first verse, he makes it clear where it's talking about in the King James Version, listen, O isles unto me. Before that, he restores lost text. It makes it clear that, that these are the scattered covenant people. So the scattered covenant people are going to come to you and they will be converted unto thee. And notice in verse 6, their camels will come from all these places. They'll bring their incense. They'll come with their praises. The flocks of Kedar will come to them. These are all Gentile flocks and peoples. But notice that they come up with acceptance on mine altar. Um, they have access to the temple and, and covenants. Verse 6, 9, surely the isles shall wait for me. The scattered covenant people, there's that idea again, will wait for me. And they'll come from ships, and they'll bring your sons from far. Verse 10, the sons of strangers, there it's, it's, it's Ger, but still Goyim, it's still yeah. Gentiles, will build up your walls. Kings will minister to you. Verse 11, your gates will be open continually. Down to verse 16, the Gentiles will suck the milk. Uh, you'll suck the milk of the Gentiles. There's an idea that these Gentiles are nursing you back into the covenant. And the millennial Messiah comes by in verse 18, where there's violence no more heard. Your walls are salvation. The sun's no more your light, but the moon, but the Jehovah will be your light. In verse 20, your everlasting light. Verse 21, thy people shall all be righteous. So God's saying, I have this plan. In this latter days, there will be these Gentiles who will come to the light and gather your sons and daughters 
and bring you back to the covenant, nurse you to it, reestablish you. And then I love the way this chapter ends. Verse 22, a little one will become a thousand, a small one, a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in his time. Yeah. We talk so much about hastening the work, and we we often go to the Doctrine and Covenants where it talks about the Lord hastening it. But that really starts with Isaiah. And part of his hastening the work to prepare the world for this millennial reign, he starts describing in verse 18, is the gospel being restored coming forth from Gentiles who become recognized as part of the covenant family and then gather scattered Israel. Yeah. It's a, a beautiful, beautiful chapter. As and a it's, botanist, it's an I interesting. Chapter, so so I go say, ahead. As, as a botanist, I call this chapter, the phototropic Gentiles <laughs> because phototropism <laughs> is the act of plants turning towards the light. So yeah. Yeah. Yep. And it's, it's fantastic because it has this cycle where it starts with Israel bringing light you know the light of the of jehovah to the gentiles and then the gentiles bring israel and then we all come together and 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 that's really how things work right we, we it, you've got this kind of cycle that uh, you could almost call this spiritual momentum um and, and and maybe we can pause for a minute i think there's an interesting transition that's uh that's been happening if we just take a step back and look at some of these chapters from a larger perspective where you've had uh, all sorts of tough stuff happening in the earlier chapters and to me uh, 58 and and part of 59 represent a transition where um isaiah as we said is teaching them you if you're gonna do things you need to do it with true purpose of heart mm -hmm. you need to do it for the right reason and then you get to these exalting chapters that really start with chapter 60 in some ways it's 59 59 is a little bit of both but but i'd say 58 and 59 are kind of like let's let's change your heart and then we get in chapter 60, here's what happens when you change your heart, when you start doing things. Then the light's going to shine forth and it's going to it's going to light up the whole world. And then the whole world comes and, and they come to me and we all join together. And then there are a number of other exalting chapters in there. But mm -hmm. it all seems to hinge on this Israel. Are you going to be Israel in your heart? Are you going to really change or mm -hmm. not? And once you change your heart and you do things with with true intent, with purity of heart, if we we're going to use phrase from uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount, then we can have this other stuff happen. We can have the light going forth and the Gentiles uh, joining you and bringing you uh, more of you in so that you become. So uh, there's such a crux in, in that stuff we were talking about with keeping the Sabbath day and keeping the, the fast holy, but really uh, that focus on whatever it is we're doing whether it's Sabbath day, whether it's ministering, uh, whether it's gathering Israel and, and, and bringing the covenant to other people, what's your intent while you're doing it? And that seems to be the, the crux as to whether God's going to honor this or not, whether he's going to shine forth on us or not. Well said. When you talk about this invitation for them to change, you make me think of uh, the name of Isaiah's son mentioned back in chapter 7. Um English readers usually pronounce it Shir Jashub, but yeah. you know, it's Sha'ar. Yeah. Yashuv. Yashuv. The, the word yeah. Shuv means to return, but it also means to change and to turn and to repent. And Sha'ar is a remnant. His name is a remnant shall return yeah. or change or repent or come back. And, yeah. and, and to me, return, it really is repentance. That's what return is. It's go back to God, right? Yeah. That's, that's what repenting is. It's returning to God. 
So as you were summarizing it, uh, maybe think, well, he's giving a, a formula here for them to fill the name of his son's prophecy. Here's how the mm-hmm. Sha'ar is going to Yashu, what you need to be doing. Yeah. Let me point out a couple other verses in these final chapters, just scattered throughout these final chapters, where he reinforces this idea of the critical role these Latter-day Gentiles, who are stewards of the covenants, will play in gathering these people back together. In chapter 61, the very next chapter, verse 5, he says, Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of aliens shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. The idea is that these Gentiles are going to make you productive. And in Isaiah's imagery, productive fields and productive flocks are always symbolic of faithful covenant people. Mm-hmm. There's that idea, again, that, that the Gentiles will play this really important role. Look over in chapter 62 now, the very next chapter in verse 2. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness and all the kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name. They're going to be brought back into the covenant, is is the idea, mm-hmm. uh, and receive this this new name. Um, so it's so interesting. Again, the the goodness of Israel reaches out to the Gentiles, and then they're both going to be blessed by this, right? It's it's powerful. Yeah, yeah, and even in the final chapter, he talks again about the critical role the Gentiles will play. Um. Look with me, for example, uh, and we'll start with verse 12 of chapter 66. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will expend, extend peace to her like a river that's referring to these covenant people and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. And you yeah. shall suck and you shall be born upon her sides and be dandled upon her knees. Again, the Gentiles come in and help. Look in verse 19. I will set a sign among them. Um, and I will, and I will, um, I will send. A, excuse me. I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them unto the nations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word translated there as nations is goyim, which is also often translated as Gentiles. I'm going to send you out to the Gentiles, to Tarshish and Pool and Lud and Tubal and Yavan and the isles afar off. There's the islands again. Those that have not heard my name in vain, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. But who, do, who comes out of those nations? They go out to Gentile nations. In verse 20, who do they bring out of those nations? They shall bring all your, not Gentiles, but your brethren. brethren. Yeah. Now they've accepted the gospel. Now they're brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all the nations. Um And I will take of them, referring to those converted Gentiles, I will take of them for priests and for Levites. That would have made Isaiah's contemporaries' jaws drop. What? Because priests and Levites can enter the house of the Lord and participate in temple ordinances. Only priests and Levites. And now he's saying, no, these Gentiles who accept the gospel will have access to, to all the temple worship. They are full members. And it says in verse 23, and all flesh will come to worship before me. Well, again, the question is, who are these Latter-day Gentiles among whom the gospel is established, who have the responsibility to go and find scattered Israel and bring them back to the covenants in preparation for the coming of Christ? And and, uh, 
as Latter-day Saints, we feel that we're a fulfillment of that prophecy with a great responsibility to do our part. And so I love that about these closing chapters of Isaiah. Yeah, it's it's beautiful because, it, again, it's it's this idea that Israelites and Gentile nations gather everybody uh and then then everyone is gathering everyone so that that this message here at the end is such an inclusive message everybody jew and gentiles the way that uh, maybe nephi would say it but uh the israelite and gentile everybody becomes israel everyone becomes israel and through the covenant and then we have full access to all of the great blessings of the covenant including and most especially exaltation and so i think this is a message that uh, president nelson would resonate with this idea that what we're we're doing is we're going out to gather scattered israel and as we do it we bring everybody with us that's one of the blessings of the scattering that israel is scattered throughout the entire world is that as we gather israel we bring the entire world with us this is not being of Israel is not an exclusive thing. It's an inclusive thing. We want everyone to be part of this covenant. And not only is everyone welcome, everyone is pled with to be part of this covenant. Yeah. So ultimately, it's righteousness that determines election, not genealogy. Yeah. It's it's whether you make and keep a covenant, right? Uh, that's uh, if, if you aren't keeping that covenant it doesn't matter who you're descended from uh and if you uh, are keeping the covenant it doesn't matter who you're descended from that's that's the key is uh, are you in that relationship with god and christ and uh keeping it with real intent of heart like we said our good friend robert j matthews who uh, served as my state patriarch for a while once told me something in regards to Latter-day Gentiles and their relationship to Israel. He, he taught me that, that the scattering of Israel, one of the blessings of it is, is it scattered the blood of Israel throughout the world. And yeah, most people have some of the blood of Israel in them. Yeah. Um, and and uh, so as we're bringing them in, he said that when a patriarch gives a patriarchal blessing and, and talks about lineage, in most cases, he's not assigning lineage. He's declaring lineage. Yeah. You could have many different bloods of Israel in you. I suppose you had all your all your genealogy worked out. Yeah. But the blessings and responsibilities that are yours are based are are identified by virtue of your that genealogy are identified in your patriarchal blessing. Well, you know, let me there's so many great things in this closing chapter, great prophecies about the millennial messiah and so forth that we just love, but Maybe I could close my contribution to this podcast with one of my favorite verses in all of Isaiah. All right. Um, from Isaiah chapter 63, starting about verse 15, through the end of chapter 64, verse 12, some people call this Isaiah's intercessory prayer uh, because mm -hmm. it's kind of a prayer that he offers and makes us think of the intercessory prayer that Jesus offered in the upper room before he went to Gethsemane. Um, there's the same, there's a lot of very personal petitioning of the Lord, and we find him interceding for us. My favorite verse in all the intercessory prayer is verse 8. Because of chapter? Of chapter 64. 64 I think this, sorry. I think 
verse 8 summarizes the way Isaiah tried to live and the way that I aspire to live mm. with this great imagery he gives as he's, as he's praying. He says, but now, O Lord, thou art our father. We are the clay, thou our potter. I love that imagery where he recognizes that God is our father, our loving heavenly father. He wants the best for us. He's also the one who will shape and mold us. If we're willing to say, here I am, God, on this lump of clay. You just take me. I trust you. And, yeah. Shape me and mold me into whatever you want me to be. It's a great way to live, isn't it? Yeah. I, I trust I think, and faith in God. I think one way you could say that is to let God prevail in your life more than anything else. Uh, that's That's a beautiful beautiful sentiment yeah yeah and in the end if we have that trust and faith i think god can shape us into a implement a vessel that is perfectly fit for his purposes and yeah. far far greater than we could ever make of ourselves yeah that's uh what did president benson used to always say it was something along the lines of uh men and women who turn their, their lives over to Christ will find that he can make much more of their lives than they can. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I, I think, turn your life over to Christ. Let God prevail. Uh, you are the, the, we are the clay. You are the potter are all different ways of, of saying not my will, but thine uh, just here or, or here am I. Right. Just I'm, I'm here. Uh, Make me what you want me to be so you can do with me what you want to do. Uh, and that's, uh, as you said, what a beautiful way to live a life. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Terry. Uh, I think that, that uh, our audience has been blessed by being able to hear from you and, and listen to you a little bit. And uh, we fit on some important themes when we talk about, the, you know, purity of intent and, uh, coming to God, bringing the whole world to God through covenant and uh, submitting our will to God. I, I can't think of more important topics than that. So thank you. And I, I hope that, uh, well, maybe we'll just give you a, a final word. Any, anything else you'd just like to say about Isaiah, the prophet, the book, or anything along those lines? Well, I, I love the prophet. You know, I, I haven't always loved him. Even after I'd been a seminary teacher for a decade, I I didn't love this prophet the way that I needed to. Um, it was about 40 years ago that I decided I needed to repent and follow the Savior's admonition given in 3 Nephi 23 when he said, search these things diligently and gave us the commandment to do so. Yeah. The decision has been a great blessing for my life and I've come to love the prophet. I know many of your listeners probably already have that same love for him and some of them may be struggling to get it. I hope they'll pay the price to, to take the time to carefully read and search those things diligently. And I know they'll come to that same, same love for this prophet and a great appreciation for why the Savior gave that important admonition to search yeah. these things diligently. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. And we hope that uh, not only is this meaningful for you, but uh, if you can think of someone who might be blessed by hearing this, that you'd share it with them. 
uh, if not the podcast, share some of the teachings or the ideas with people who could use those blessings. And thanks again, Terry. Thank have you, a, Terry. Have a wonderful day. I will. If you insist, I will. All right. Okay. Bye. I'm insisting both you and, and the audience, all of you, you just have to do it now. So yeah, thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.